Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 29th of the 5th. I hope you've been well since we were last talking. Michael, how have you been? I'm very well, Gary. It's a beautiful day. It's a series of beautiful days and the, the news is, is COVID good. We're rolling out phase two, we're heading to phase three. I'm just really excited. I'm excited, Gary, and I'm, I'm happy to be alive. So we'll kick into the uh, into the news itself in a bit. There's one thing I wanted to mention uh, just as an opener. We don't really know a lot about it, and there's a fair bit up in the air. Yesterday, it came out that Tom Curran, who is the General Secretary of Fine Gael, mm-hmm. will be stepping back from his position at the end of August, according to Tom Curran. He says that um, there's a process has begun to recruit his replacement, that there's a leading executive recruitment firm doing so, and that the position will be advertised in the Irish Times today. Now, I haven't seen the Irish Times today. I don't know if that actually happened. But Tom Curran, for those who don't know, is um, the General Secretary of Fine Gael, a man who has had his uh, hand on the scale of many a Fine Gael decision. Since, what, 1999? Before that? Certainly 1999. I... I... It feels longer than that. Then again, 1999 is now 20 years, so it, that's a long time. It was, was it only the Times, the Independent, didn't get a... It, well, didn't mention anything about the Independent in the uh, in the release that went out to Finnegan. Interesting. Mm. Tom Curran has had many points where Tom Curran was meant to leave Finnegan before, and Tom Curran has survived all of them. Kate O'Connell was... Um, he was one of the people who got Kate O'Connell put onto the docket and helped her become a Fine Gael TD. She said that he was one of the things that would survive the apocalypse along with cockroaches. Which I, I, I don't think was taken uh, in its in best part, although I, 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 I'm sure it was meant complimentary. It maybe didn't sound quite complimentary. Also, for people who are confused about what his position actually entails, the general secretary of an organisation like Fine Gael is effectively the head of Fine Gael. The administrative head, shall we say. Yes. Now, in our, or the head. In Ireland, the distinction between the policymaker and the administrator sometimes is, is unclear. It's fudged, since policy is not something which is at the top of the list of things that people actually give a sweet penny dam about in Ireland. It was Joseph Stalin's job. <laughs> oh, God, yes, it was Joseph Stalin's job. General Secretary of the Party was indeed Stalin's job, as it was Mao's job, I believe, Gary, if we want to continue mm. down that particular line. Um, I don't know if either are really are comparable figures. No, I mean, Curran has had... Uh, he's had a very interesting career in a very uh, unreported fashion. He's not a man who's generally gone after having his own name in print, although I don't think he dislikes it. Doesn't seem to uh, to bother with it. Now, the interesting thing here is that um, when Leo was elected, one of the things he was meant to have said was that he would get rid of Tom Curran. Alleg- and, allegedly. Allegedly. And then he and Tom Curran had a bit of a meeting, and uh, Tom Curran survived, because Tom Curran knows where all of the Fine Gael bodies are buried, mostly because he put a lot of them there. Uh, speaking figuratively, of course, Fine Gael has no bodies buried anywhere. But if they did... If they did, he would know. He would know. But they don't. But now, I mean, the interesting thing here is that um, 
So they're bringing in, they've got this executive talent firm looking from Curran's replacement. I would be interested to see if Curran is sitting on the panel to select his own replacement. Well, I would say in a situation like that, you're a very, very senior management position. You you would very often have the outgoing mem person there. He's the person who most and best understands the demands of the position and what the job might require and therefore be maybe in the best position to give advice to the party on the best person to appoint. He may have already got in his little head a vague idea, oh, that person or this person might be a good fit. You never know. And so the grand old regime of Fine Gael tumbles on. Better be lucky than rich. Having said that, I wouldn't be surprised if they're unable to fill the position and Tom Curran gracefully steps in as a temporary consultant to fill the position, possibly at an even higher wage, until someone suitable is found on the ground. There are a few... I mean, he'd hate to do it. (laughs) He would. There are a few phrases in the English language quite as beautiful as temporary consultant. I mean, you you obviously have to pay him higher because there's there's no security of job. And there's no pension. You know, it's just straight up money. The 90,000 that he's currently on would simply not be up to the requirements and the responsibilities he would have to take on and at short notice. When we say 90,000, we're using that figure figuratively as a metaphor for a decent salary. What he actually earns is between himself and the party, we don't know. We, we could merely speculate. But I'm sure he's reasonably remunerated by a generous party for a great work and the great work that he does. Yes, the, the great... Great works that he's done. Great and terrible things, I believe, is the phrase. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that was actually referring to Tom Curran. I think it might have been somebody else. But anyway, I don't know. It seems to fit. Just maybe not with the original dress and what uh, what part is important there. But anyway, moving on from that, Michael, did you see the Greens want to live? Uh, want to end co living? Well, absolutely, and I think that finally the Greens have hit on an idea which I like. Because, as I understand it, and I probably understand it badly, one of the problems with co-living that they see is in in this era of COVID-19, you don't want to be having people co-living because obviously that represents, you know, you're going to have issues regarding infection and isolation, whatever. And they're quite right. And I think that, now, as I understand it, the Greens are still in favour of public transport. Is that correct? They don't want us all driving as cars. Which is a bit weird because they're against co-living because of COVID nineteen. They're saying it would, uh, it would, it would spread easily. In it, but weirdly enough, public transport is one of the main spreaders of. Ah, but no, you see, Gary, I think you've 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 missed the point here. Obviously, the Greens are evolving a new transport policy where everybody gets to be on their own bus, and I, for one, think that that is. They, sh- they, sh- they should have been doing this for a year. The number of times the bus pulls up and there's, a, frankly, Gary, all sorts of other people on it, very often sitting in the seat that I want to sit in and looking peculiar, and some of them looking very peculiar. The Lewis, for example, I would be much, much more willing to take the Lewis if I was guaranteed a compartment to myself. Kieran Cuff, who was the Green Party MEP, called co-living Dickensian in nature. A bit like trains. But we like trains, mm. don't we like trains? Or the many whore dogs of London. <laughs> okay, I, I are. The other thing, I mean, there's something we could go back to with trains. In the old days, you used to have compartments in trains. And first class, second class, third class. 
I think we should have all first class, but all compartments again, so you don't have to other people. And you should have breakfast and and drinks trolleys, proper service. I think the Greens are onto a winner here. Now, I'm not saying that the buses would have to be the same size, but a reasonably comfortable mini bush. The kind of thing you get when you go on your holidays in Turkey, they call the Dolmush. That kind of thing. And I think that would be, I would be very happy to go to Dublin using public transport on that basis. But obviously, I wouldn't go on a co, a co, co-busing or co-training in the age of COVID-19, Gary. That's just, that's unacceptable. That would not be safe. Hazel Chu, the Green Party um, councillor, said that the co-living was tenements. Ono Breen said it was the last thing we needed during a pandemic. There's got a, there's a lot of people coming out and speaking about the uh, the importance of getting rid of this due to COVID-19 and, and pandemic preparedness. When you said Hazel Tube, I thought you said Hazel Tube for a second. I thought, God, have they actually built an underground in Dublin that I hadn't heard somewhere between Hazelwood and Cherrywood? Yeah, I don't know what they have against this. I mean, I would have thought that co-living was a kind of a a green idea. It's hip and young and groovy and trendy and they're doing it in Sweden and Berlin and other places that traditionally raise up lots of green people. Yeah. You know, also it's just silly. I mean it's just frankly silly. Calling it and co living is not going to be inverted commas the solution to the current problems regarding housing in, in Dublin, but it's a solution to a part of the problem. I, wh- why? If nobody wants to do it, nobody will do it. You know? Let pe- Give people the, a choice. And if some people want to do it, let them do it. What's the big deal? Why? You know, it's like somebody coming out and saying they're desperately against blackcurrant flavours in fruit pastilles. You know? Well, if people people don't like the fruit pastilles, the blackcurrants, they'll, they'll stop buying them. You know? It's okay. You know? Other people who like fruit blackcurrant will buy them. Let the market decide. Oh, or that was is that just a very silly thing to also, say? Also, like a lot of the co-living developments that we've seen, they've had their permission granted on the condition that each unit has its own cooking facility. So, in fact, on that basis, on the basis that each room has a very small and kind of self-contained cooking facility, yeah, and there is, of course, the communal kitchen, uh, probably actually less likely to spread infection than in a house share, because you won't have your own like, Absolutely, kitchenette. yeah, yeah. But then again, they're probably against house share as well. I mean, they're, they're against everything. It's the Green Party. Yeah, and we, we should explain, sorry, just on quickly, very on this house share, uh, the co-living thing. If you go to New York, there are loads of the of, of uh, certain kinds of uh, rental accommodation, small scales, young people rental accommodation, which does not have, which don't have kitchens. You have enough. You have a, you can you can boil a kettle. You can toast a bagel. You might have a little. You might have a microwave or something. But they they just don't have kitchens. It's not considered to be weird. People don't. They don't. These are not people that cook. They are young people. They eat out. Or they they microwave or they they do something. They toast something. This is not some weird bizarre notion that has never been tried before. It's a common thing. And actually, he in this case they're talking about having communal ki- communal kitchens. So. Which is something you don't have in other So there is that option. And yet it's been portrayed. It's not something I might like, but God, if you're 22 in Dublin and it provides... Yes, like I, 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 had a, I had a look at some of the ones that were being pushed, the co-living ones. A lot of these places are quite trendy, well-to-do kind of designs. 
Like, we have a rooftop terrace and here's oh, yeah. the Instagram swing. They will, and they'll have... They'll have games rooms and they might have a small cinema and they might have a pool. They'll almost, they'll definitely have a gym. It kind of reminds me of, do you remember the um, the trouble we had with bedsits? Before yeah, they got banned? yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, people shouldn't live like this. But yet many people were very comfortably living like this and liking bedsits because they tended to be a bit cheaper. And also because they were only going to be there for a year. And they were 19 and they were in Dublin or wherever for the first time free. And they're going to do this for a year or so. And it was cheap. And that was all they wanted. And thousands of people lived there. But they said, no, no. You, on the, I, I, you actually had people saying things like, you couldn't raise a family in those conditions. It's outrageous. Well, You wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, if you are raising a family, well, then that's a, that's a problem. But the vast majority of people were not raising families and had no intention of raising families. They would when they had very little money, they got the squalid one, and then they got a little bit more money, they got a slightly nicer one, and eventually, at some stage, they'd get out of it altogether because they had enough money to get a nice place. That's the nature. But there's a refusal, a fundamental refusal to accept that there's a connection between cost and quality. Right. The, the other thing here is that, at the end of the day, if people don't want to live in co-living, if they're happier you know, living further away and commuting or paying more for a nicer house, they'll do that and these developments will fail. Yes. At which point they'll probably be redeveloped into ones that are more appropriate to the market. Now, to be honest, I would imagine that the rent in Dublin is going to be coming down soon. Yes. And that may actually do a lot of damage to the co-living arrangements because if they can't come down that much and... You know, there starts being not that much difference between co-living and quite a nice place in the same area. Well, then people will probably go for that, in which case the market and people have decided what they want to do. But I like looking at some of the co-living developments, I wouldn't have minded living in them when I was younger. I probably still wouldn't mind living in them now if I didn't have like a partner and a relationship and all of that nonsense. Yeah, I think that actually there represents a particular kind of lifestyle choice which generation whatever now would look at and see this this is a good choice you're going to have. As I said, you're gonna have facilities like you're gonna have gen you're gonna have gardens, you're gonna have roof gardens, you're gonna have gym. This gym there might be a lap pool. There's gonna be an entertainment centre. It's it's a it'll be like living in a certain you know those like residence hotels. Mm. You, when if if you if you're going for a, a a stay in a city and you do, you might get a deal on it'll be like living in a residence hotel. There may be some ancillary staff on site to help you out with some elements, and you know I think that I can imagine that young people might find this an an interesting and reasonable uh, accommodation alternative. It's like you said, Gary. I mean, how, how is this in any way worse than a house share? I mean, if you've got a four or five bedroom house, you got a four bedroom house, you could have easily got six people living in it. You, I mean, or, or, or more like you say, you've got two two couples, uh, and then, and which is four, and then maybe three singles. That's five, but that's seven people living in it. And in what would probably be, when you averaged it out, a more confined space. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't get the thing about co living because. Like lots of people say this looks terrible in which case okay don't live in it and if it is terrible well then it should have some other advantage like being substantially cheaper or being in a better location and if it doesn't have either of those things and it is terrible people won't live there and they'll fail yeah so that seems like a problem that sort of sorts itself out pretty quickly 
my thing, my the thing I don't get about it is what to short circuit what you were saying is, you don't like it, don't do it. Why? Why is it necessary to say I? I, I don't like that. I think that's a very that's a bad thing. I so let's let's ban that. Let's stop that happening. This the speed at which people now are willing to go from I do not like to we must ban is getting is getting faster and faster. And I mean, it's never been terribly long distance for most of the Green Party's representatives. No, no. Having said that, they haven't torn each other apart over the last week, so, you know. Oh, well, no, in fairness, the Attorney General issue is causing a little bit of a one. That is, I have enjoyed the, um, so for those who, who missed this, there was news that the Attorney, that the Greens wanted to replace the Attorney General. I think we talked about this last week. Now, they, the Greens, it should be, we should point out the Greens themselves say that this is a planted story from either Fine Gael or Fine Gael for their own nefarious purposes and that they haven't actually put their foot down or demanded or required anything regarding Attorney General's. However, it is also true that it, it would appear that at least one person is considered to be a favourable choice within the party to be AG. But not with everybody. Seems that this individual, during the abortion referendum, was one of a group of, I think, about 200 lawyers, uh, solicitors and barristers, who signed a letter um, saying that they had concerns about the law as it was formulated at that point. And I'm not sure if they actively called for a no vote. I think they did based not on the actual ideological position they had on abortion, but rather on a legal issue. From what I remember, it's been a while since I've seen the letter, there may have been an ideological position given, but I don't think there was. And I talked to some of those people during the referendum, and there were people there who were not strongly pro-choice, but pro-choice. They just thought it was that the law was going to be an issue. Yes. Um, But it came out that he was apparently the person the Greens were considering, and Greens took it pearly, some of the Green representatives on the more progressive or red wing of the Greens, as did some of the Fine Gaelers. Well, yeah, absolutely. They haven't toiled deep in the bowels of the social media minds for the last three or four or five years to create, to get this great success guy just to have pro-lifers in cabinet. I mean, possibly a pro-lifer. Possibly just someone who thought there was an issue with the law. Possible pro-lifer. Or somebody who was known to consort with pro-lifers. Had been in the same building. Yes. May have had coffee with. May have once said pleasant things about. Yeah, this is a, a, a position that particularly seems to be exercising people on a certain wing of young Fine Gael, But I don't know. I mean, is it really? Does it not? Does it not strike them as, shall we say, problematic? The notion that we are now going to apply hygiene tests to a cabinet indeed if that's going to be their, their position surely if your position is that you can't have somebody in that Fine Gael should not have someone in cabinet who is pro-life that then they really they shouldn't have people in the doll who's I mean they have done their best to get rid of them don't doubt it but there may be a few people lingering on in the parliamentary party harboring secretly some dark pro-life feelings if this is the position then surely then the hygiene test would require that the, the likes of them be booted out now what they won't do is boot out the pro-life voters because Fine Gael has a fair few of them I think 
I don't know why, but it does. And I think that they want to keep hold of them. I think the interesting thing about the reaction I've seen from some people, mostly in the sort of young Fine Gael kind of camp, because they, you know, they obviously change throughout the years. Sometimes they're very conservative, sometimes they're progressive. Now there's kind of a split, but there's some painfully, painfully what the kids would call woke oh, people yeah. in it. But I loved that the reaction I saw of these people was not the fact that the Green Party wanted the Attorney General because they're clearly worried about the constitutionality of some of the things they want done. It was that the Greens would get an Attorney General who could push through these things without concern for constitutional niceties, <laughs> who may be pro-life. Oh, God. And you're just sort of like, that is like arguing about the colour of the uniform of the firing squad. Yeah, yeah. The, this is very much arse uh, before tip and cart before horse when you're looking at your priorities. But anyway, anyway, indeed. I suppose I suppose this, there's actually quite a, a lot. I think we'll, we'll save quite a lot for Sunday. There's that thing in Central Park with the woman and the man and the dog, but we'll, uh, we'll save that for... Sunday, because I think that's a, a good rollicking time. Yes. We, we'll close by looking at uh, Trump. Trump and the executive order. Yeah. Trump has finally been moved to put out an executive order on social media, and all it took was a fact check on one of his tweets. Okay. You could say, I admire Twitter. They boldly went where nobody would have gone before. They fearlessly faced up. They spoke truth to power. Uh, They did what they should do. Or alternatively, you could say, how fucking stupid was that? One of the things, uh, this or may not be aware of it, that Twitter has in many jurisdictions relied upon is its insistence that Twitter is not a publisher, but rather what? A distributor, would you say? It's a platform. A platform. It's It's the publisher platform distinction. So, as a publisher, as a platform, not a publisher, it cannot be held legally responsible for statements made on the plat that are pub- on the, on the platform in the same way say if you are a newspaper publishing the opinions of a person so issues around libel defamation liability that kind of thing don't apply now there's been a, it there's been a big a significant tension about this particularly when in recent years twitter and has been moving more towards moderating content, removing content, managing the presentation or the of content, how, the what what might trend and what might, which is which shifting it towards the direction of looking a bit like it was actually a publisher rather than just simply a neutral platform where things appeared and it was simply a conduit to the world. It. <laughs> Oh, Donald, Donald tweeted. I don't, what did he tweet? Actually, I never checked. But whatever he tweeted was fact-checked and I think found to be not the case. Is that right? I think it would, at least one of the reporters had said that it was found to be inverted commas fake news and God almighty, if we're f- all tired of one phrase at this stage in our lives, this year fake news must be, it must be one of those phrases we're sick of. Tired of, but anyway. So they also hid one of his tweets for promoting violence. Yes, in the and this was in the context of the 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 uh, the situation in uh, Minneapolis as well. I think, isn't it? And you could do that to me or me or the we. You could do that maybe to some deputy or even a senator. But you don't. You don't do it to the president, and you especially don't do it when the president is 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 Donald Trump. 
it said that it, the tweet violated the Twitter rules about glorifying violence. The tweet reads, it's about the, the issues in Minneapolis, which we'll go into on Sunday in a bit more detail. But suffice it to say that a man called George Floyd was shot, a black man. Or sorry, he wasn't shot, he was um, killed. Police officer knelt on his neck, and there's now an investigation to kind of see what happened. Yeah. But a protest in uh, his name turned rapidly into a riot and led to the burning and looting of several uh, locations, including affordable housing burning down, which is really not going to help the community. I hate that racist affordable housing, though, Gary. Nothing says we're here for the community like burning down the community's housing. Absolutely. So he said, uh, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Walls and told him the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Thank you. Which does not, to me, seem to glorify violence so much as, say, looters will be shot. Well, you see, (laughs) it's it's the funny... you, You really think that you would make a distinction between the use of violence, which is state-sanctioned and, shall we say, professional, and then you're just your general amateur enthusiastic violence. This is the head of the armed forces, the commander-in-chief, saying that in response to a breakdown in order, security forces will be deployed and people will be shot. I mean, shooting looters is part of the riot act. You you can shoot looters. (laughs) And they decided that this was glorifying... Oh, God. You have to hope, you have to hope that that was done by a bot. But even if it was done by, I mean, surely there's somebody in Twitter whose only job is to sit and look at Donald's tweets. Well, there is there is an interesting thing in that the executive order actually calls out by position one of Twitter's high-level employees, the person tasked with site integrity, points out that he is very much against Trump, which is actually the case. He has a Twitter account. He's very on the left. He's very anti-Trump, which seems to me to be a radically stupid thing for the person uh, overseeing this to do, like about to launch uh, corrections and hiding of Trump's tweets. You think you would hide your tweets where you talk about what a gobshite he is? Well, you got, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I would, I would rather say is the stupid person there is Mr. Page. I don't see why a guy who has that kind of Twitter profile behind him should be anywhere near a position like that. Why would you put him in that? Why would it, and if you have him in that position, why would you leave him in it? So I we I think this was one of the first things we ever talked about in the podcast, section 230 of the Communications Decency Act yeah. and the split between publisher and platform. Um, basically, if you're a platform and you just let things go up and you have basic rules for what can and can't be said, but you don't really take ideological positions and you don't really try and disrupt the flow of information, you are a platform and you can't be blamed for anything they publish. But the more control you put over what can be seen and how much it can be seen and how it's promoted or if you start publishing things with clear ideological bias, the more you're moving towards a publisher. And if you're a publisher, you are responsible for what you publish i would actually say what will hang twitter in the end on this yeah oh there'll be a couple of things but one i think they'll fall on pretty rapidly is their uh, rules regarding misgendering and transgenderism right so on 
Twitter if you misgender someone, if you refer to someone who is, let's say, male, female, transgender as male, you will have your account deleted. At the very best, you'll lose the tweet in question or you'll be suspended until you agree to manually delete. Yeah. But that's a clear editorial position. Sure. Also doesn't really work because if you don't go, if you go for some sort of more biologically determined view of sex and gender, then misgendering that person would be calling them a woman. So it's Twitter taking a clear ideological position on something. And I imagine that's one of the things the Trump administration is going to use. This would cripple, by the way, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, and would have wide-ranging impacts, which is why no one has ever tried to actually do it, to force these into being um, recognised as publishers. Having said that, lots of people in the Democratic Party previously have wanted to do this as well, including, I'm pretty sure, Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely, yeah. definitely seen stuff from the... uh, Democratic nominee for President Joe Biden. We're seeing all sorts of squeals and whelps and wails and anguish from persons on the on the progressive left because Donald has done it. But for the last three years, Gary, we have been hearing the tech companies about have gone too far. Net neutrality. The monopoly position occupied by these the tech companies have to be made to accept responsibility. We have to have Codes of conduct. We can't have fake news. All, all of these, as you say, YouTube, YouTube recently has become under a lot of ha- uh, fire because of misinformation that's been spread on COVID. Same for Facebook. Facebook is now a policy of taking down what it calls fake news unrelated on topics related to health oh. issues. Weirdly enough, Mark Zuckerberg came out yesterday and said that uh, social media absolutely should not fact check political speech. And he was roundly called out for it. But I think he's actually, there is a strong argument there that he's right. Well, Zuckerberg has, or Zuckerberg slash Facebook, has been slightly out of step with some of the, with the others. If you remember, we were talking, we talked to people who had been in at different times regarding different political campaigns that were going on here and other places, talking to the various uh, tech groups like talk, talking to people in YouTube, talking to people in Google, in Twitter, in Facebook, and the consensus seemed to be that Facebook had a, had a, a a a greater awareness, for example, that there was a diversity of opinion, that there were actually other opinions out there, that this was not a simple settled issue. Google seemed to have a more, how would one say, homogeneous approach ideologically. Yeah, whenever I've dealt with Facebook on anything political or ideological from working on campaigns or just talking to some of their people privately, the general sense I've got is that Facebook, yes, it, it recruits heavily from the tech culture and from San Francisco, so it tends more towards not even a sort of a very particular type of not even left wing but it's it's just odd and can be quite progressive but the core directive there was we just want to make money yeah and yeah there's all of this stuff but we don't want to interfere in that and that seemed to be the way it was going it's perfectly fine but also there's i think an element and maybe i'm wrong with this but an element of a recognition that getting involved in that kind of stuff and taking a position on that kind of stuff would actually stop them making money and therefore was actively a bad thing. I do like the fact that um, the executive order specifically talks about the uh, the protections on platform or publisher. And it doesn't technically block anything itself. What it wants is for reviews. Yeah. Um, and for the 
FCC and for the Attorney General to basically look at what can be done. And you're probably looking at legislation here. But the interesting thing is uh, Section 7 of the Executive Order. And I'll put a link to the full Executive Order at the bottom of the podcast. Uh, Section 7. For purposes of this order, the term online platform means any website or application that allows users to create and share content or engage in social networking or any general search engine. Ah. So Google is also up in this. And I'm not sad to see that happen because I still haven't forgiven Google for the abortion referendum. For their search uh, search priorities. I worked for the, um, the No Campaign, obviously. And we had quite an extensive and quite large series of ad buys set up on Google. Oh, yes. That uh, we thought were, because at that point we were, the mainstream media is not covering anything we want. It's either not picking it up or it's presenting it in the worst possible light. So we'll go through Google and we will put a substantial ad buy in, which we think will be fairly persuasive. And then Google pulled it. And it was our view that they pulled it because they were trying to help the opposing side of the campaign. I think we got a call from one of their people uh, telling us it was going to be pulled, I think, six minutes before it went public. And then when the Yes campaign came out and reacted to it, of course, they said they they were delighted to see this happen. Because, of course, you have to be very careful about these things. And in no way because it cut the legs out of an opponent. Uh, We noted that their press release had been dated from the day before. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, 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 yes. So there was a little bit of... Google is heavily progressive, and we think this is evidence of them having their hand on the scale a bit. Uh, never prove it, but still, the overall feeling. So I'm not terribly... But that that's a perfect example of someone you're moving into publishing then. Now, obviously this is going to be challenged. People are saying that it's not legal, or at least it's of doubtful legality. There are First Amendment issues well, I, I mean, people assumed that the executive order was going to be very different than what actually came out, I think. Whereas what we have here is much more of a call for the Attorney General to take review, uh, take advice from the various states and then come back with something that will be able to narrow it so the platforms are platforms and publishers are publishers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it doesn't really say anything at all, even seems to be... It doesn't really do anything itself. It just tells other people to do things and that this is his concern. Oh, I think, I think, I think it tells people something all right, Gary. <laughs> I, think, I, think it, I think it carries a message with it. There has been a kind of assumption, I suppose, that no matter what the situation was, who you were, Google is bigger than you, mm. or at least... The online presence of Facebook, all of the Twitter combined, they are bigger than anybody else. And there's no way you can... And I suppose Donald is, is looking at in, uh, ways of saying to them, you know what? You're not that big. I'm president. I'm king of the world. There's lots of stuff I can do too. There is. Uh, there are actually some interesting things in this. It particularly calls out um, the use of algorithms to suppress views based on the ideological positioning of someone or the people they follow Mm -hmm. but it particularly calls out and this is interesting differing policies allowing for otherwise impermissible behavior when committed by accounts associated with the chinese communist party Uh or other anti-democratic associations or government 
that is a curiously specific line to put into a report. <laughs> as you say, curiously specific. Chinese Communist Party. Right, but it also, you've seen a thing now with uh, social media using fact checkers. And these tend to be third party entities. So it uh, it calls out that. It wants that reviewed as well. And it wants things that would limit monetization looked at. But it doesn't Ooh, do anything itself. It just says... That's fight uh, and talk. Yeah. Limit monetization. I, I would say that uh, Jack, the, uh, the head of Twitter, has fielded a couple of angry phone calls from Google and Facebook. Yeah, and maybe one or two of his larger shareholders. I mean, he just came through a fairly rough period there uh, last year with uh, the large institutional shareholders in Twitter, basically saying, listen, you either get this together or or move on. And he's managed to stay in situ to drive it. There is actually one other thing that I think is interesting. It's section three. Protecting federal taxpayer dollars from financing online platforms that restrict free speech. He wants every executive department and agency to review all federal, their their agency's federal spending on advertising and marketing paid to online platforms. So he wants an itemized list of everything the federal government has oh. paid these people on advertising. You have to imagine that that's money. Yeah, that's but it's also... Proper money. The fact you want to know what it is yeah. kind of puts across the message that I will stop this. <laughs> so there's a wonderful sort of, okay, we're going to look at costing you money. Yeah. Then we're going to look at your algorithms. Then we're going to look at your third party orders. Then we're going to look at your relationship with the Chinese. Which for, let's say, organizations like Google, where we found out during the week that YouTube, despite being banned in China, ban uh, if you made certain... If you use certain... Chinese uh, language symbols that were had historically been used to criticize the Co- Communist Party of China, your account would, within about 15 seconds, that comment would be gone. And it was global. Yeah. And as you said, just to reflect on the fact that this is on YouTube, which is banned in China. Nobody in China was going to see these comments. No, it's still very popular in China. Actually, well, obviously, yeah, people for, are going to be People who are slightly more advanced and will use VPNs. Yeah. But the interesting thing, Michael, here is that, because people were asking, well, why would they do that if they're banned in China? One, they could be gearing up for a relaunch in China. Uh-huh. And it's a lovely way to get in with the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. But there's another country that does speak Mandarin, Chinese, and uh, YouTube is not banned in. And that's Taiwan. Taiwan, yes. So... You could, theoretically, I'm not suggesting YouTube is doing this, be controlling the flow of information by removing automatically, because it was happening too fast to be done by hand, by automatically removing comments that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party, not because of anything in mainland China, Uh but in order to shape the discourse in Taiwan. Interesting. All of this this is all very big thing and very interesting stuff. I think we might return to some of this stuff on Sunday, we certainly will be talking, I think, about Minneapolis and Trump's response there and some of the broader issues in that. And there are some other interesting and stories happening even in Irish politics, uh, which don't involve picnics, even though the weather is lovely, which we'll be getting on to. So, well, there, is, there is one actual final thing I wanted yeah? to mention, because you might find it interesting. He wants the Federal Trade Commission uh, under Section 4C to look at unfair and deceptive acts or practices, and then argues 
that that might include practices by entities which are classed by Section 230 uh, as being platforms, but are in fact publishers. And so if you are classed legally as a platform, but act like a publisher, maybe we can get you for unfair and deceptive practices. Oh, yes. Which would be, uh, no one really wants to pick a fight with the FTC. Mm. It's a long, it's a laundry list, isn't it? It's, after we've done this, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and we're going to look at that, and then we're going to take this out. And it's just a sense of, it's going to go on and on, and we're going to make your life so uncomfortable, and we're going to take money, and we're going to make you less profitable, and we're going to make people nervous about using you. It's, um... Uh, it's a it's a shot across the bows at the at least, and then it just says, "Well, and the attorney general is going to look all into all of this with a working group." So it's not even something you can look at and go, "Well, that's not legal under whatever Communications Act." It's simply, "Oh, we'll find a law, we'll make one, <laughs> and then we'll vote it true, and this is what's going to be in it." And you just get to look at that and go, "Oh, bollocks!" Um, Ooh, it was a it was a tweet about postal votes. I think Donald Trump had said that they were um, very prone to fraud, uh-huh. and I think they fact checked that in a way that suggested that wasn't so. Uh, unfortunately for them, in that instance, if I'm recalling this correctly, and I'm not a hundred percent on this, um, if that has actually had happened, postal votes are pretty much everyone's acceptance the easiest type of vote to. Um, to fraudulently I, enter. I was about to say. I mean, I'm sure. I unless I dreamt it. There were there were examples. I think a pretty egregious use of postal votes in Illinois, Ohio. That the, the Rust Belt. I mean, there's, there's global examples of postal votes. Um, which is not to say that they can't be used, but the idea that they're perfect and that. There's no issue of fraud, I think. Is, no, there's um, significant problems with a series of reasons that they talk about in the States for a long time about doing something, let's do something about this, and they haven't done anything about it. Anyway, as I said, that's great stuff. We'll, uh, we'll be back on Sunday. Hopefully Sunday will be like today, happy and warm and sunny, and we'll all be not inside but outside, but safe all the same and enjoying ourselves in the good weather. So until then, I'd say bye-bye. All the best.